Welcome to Probably Science. My name's Andy Wood. I'm Matt Kirshen. Hey, Andy. <laughs> Hello there. Did you pause <laughs> on your own name, or was that a glitch in the recording? I think that was a glitch in the recording, because oh, I'm it's... fairly sure I just said I'm Matt Kirshen in a, <laughs> in a continuous motion, okay. the way I always have. I'm glad that you are saying your name with confidence now. You know, it's what, <laughs> I, um, I don't want to brag, but I've also learned how to spell it, Ooh. so in joined up. That's... Very yeah, impressive. so it's it's going very well. I've made good use of my lockdown. I was going to say, it's 2020 productive year for all of us. Yeah. Uh, and you know who else has had a very productive year is our friend and returning guest, uh, Professor Peter McGraw. Hey, guys, it's good to see this uh, podcast off to a, such a smashing start. <laughs> it doesn't matter. If we start off this badly, then it's just like there's no pressure for it's going to be uh, better from here, downhill or uphill from here, whichever way is better. Is I'd say this is downhill, one of the better. slickest starts we've ever had. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I say this is NPR level of slickness. <laughs> I'm going to make some background sounds to make you think that I'm at a street market in Marrakesh. <laughs> yeah. That'll give it some gravitas, I think. I, should, I think we should try going for like the radio lab kind of thing, where even though we're reading the same article, I'm constantly surprised by what you're saying. <laughs> Do they still? Didn't I haven't listened a lot recently, but didn't the non-Jad host leave the show or not, Robert? Oh, I, I don't know because that was his whole job. Was like, listen, I'm just a doddering. Uh, it's just so disingenuous. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I still love the show, but it's. Uh... They do. They do a very good job, but it is all. It. You know what it is? Is that it's the old infomercial trick? That's what oh, it is. Yeah. That mm. surely you can't be telling me that there's a way I can broil while I broast. Yeah. No way. <laughs> this. There's got to be a better way. And that's that's all that we're getting for our money. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not even close. So you might, long-time listeners to the show might remember uh, Peter McGraw from his previous book and earlier work, The Humor Code, breaking so, down theory as to what makes people laugh. Why uh, Matt is funny and why Andy is funny. I have, I have the keys. I can, t- I can <laughs> tell you why these guys are funny. So that, that, that book, we got deep into your, not. Yes, your benign not. violation theory. Yeah, that was a long time ago, but it's, it's really fun to be back. So, what have you been doing since? I, we should also say that you are your jo- you are a professor of psychology. That's what the professor part is from. Yeah, more or less. I mean, I have a PhD in in research psychology. I'm, I call myself nowadays a behavioral economist because um, kind of more regular everyday people actually understand what that is. Um, I actually teach in a business school these days. But yeah, I mean, this is one of the sort of benefits and costs to my life as I I do a lot of dabbling. Um, nothing spectacularly good, but I, I kind of do things sort of fair to good in a, in a wide variety, oh, come wide on. array of places. You, you just said people understand what behavioral economy is more than psychology. Can I put myself in the opposite camp and ask you what behavioral economy economics yeah, is? Uh, yeah, yeah, certainly. So behavioral economics is kind of like the intersection of microeconomics and psychological theory. So um, essentially starting in like the early, no, I'd say mid to late 50s and then more recently in the last you know, 20 years or so, a bunch of sort of psychologists have been taking the way that that economists think that we make decisions and and judgments in the world and sprinkling in a heavy dose of this is how we actually do it. And so, you you know, you've probably heard of 
of things like loss aversion or the availability heuristic. These are kind of heuristics and biases uh, in in a world that um, that the economists kind of have wrong. That is, they think we are much too rational, we're much too calculative, we're much too motivated to get the answer right. And these psychologists have been have been sort of correcting the record, so to speak. And the behavioral economics work is sort of finding its way into the into the business acumen these so days. The, the, might as well just go into the two things you just mentioned there. So if I'm right about the loss aversion, if I'm right about this, is that people are feel worse about losing something they already had than gaining something new. Yeah, essentially. So the loss aversion is a specific version of what's called the negativity bias. So the negativity bias essentially is that we as humans are more sensitive to bad things than good things. They demand more of our attention. They affect our emotions more. They affect our choices more. And loss aversion is a specific case of this with regard to um, uh, to the idea of losing something or gaining something. And, and in short, it explains for example, the status quo bias, why it's so hard to make change in the world. Because anytime you decide to make a change, the loss of that change looms larger than the gain. And so as a result, people need a lot more gains in order to to move forward in life. Oh, that's interesting. Because I I know one of the simplest examples of loss aversion is people don't feel good if you give them $10 and then take $5 away. Even though they've gained five bucks, they're like, well, if it feels bad, that go through that. Yes, that's right. So losing money just hurts a whole lot more than than winning money feels good. I mean, there's obviously notable exceptions like Vegas, but in general, especially with large dollar amounts, um, we are super uh, super tuned in to those those potential losses. And then the the issue, of course, is that you know the economists of the world. Um, find this befuddling because um, loss aversion in the long run often leads us to make decisions that are bad bad for our well-being. For example, it may inhibit risk-taking and, and risk and reward are, are correlated. Or even just misapplying your brain power on things. Like just two weeks ago, I was trying to get some way to watch live primetime TV for reasons we've discussed in the past of the podcast. And I signed up for YouTube TV because it said it had a free trial. And then as soon as I clicked OK, it said, you've just been charged $65 because I guess I'd done the free trial three years ago and forgot, but it didn't mm. alert me to that. <laughs> and I spent and I was instantly aware of the loss of, of, of this bias when I'm like, OK, I got to put this out of my head. I can probably get it refunded. If not, it's $65. I just won four days of Jeopardy, but it yeah. still like loomed in my mind. <laughs> it's I was like, $65 I to watch yourself win. Yeah. So even though I was I was instantly aware of what was happening in my brain, I couldn't just turn it off by my awareness of it. It was so strange. Yes, and and what's cool about you, Andy, is I, I know you well enough to know how ultimately you are rational. You know what I mean? Like you can correct your course, which is what you just did there, right? So so but still, what we sh- I wasted hours of thought probably on like how am I gonna who am I gonna call to get this ah, canceled? But uh, anyway, go ahead. That's yeah, why I said- and then also you probably. <laughs> You would quite often then spend spend hours on the phone to YouTube and like researching this stuff, and then realize, <laughs> oh, I could have be I could have made sixty five dollars in the time I've spent trying to get sixty five dollars back off of YouTube. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's why I said ultimately rational, not in the yeah. moment rational. That you can get there eventually with enough machinations. I mean, the easiest way to think about the negativity bias in general is 
Very rarely do we find ourselves awake at 4.30 in the morning, ruminating about all the good things happening in our life. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not walking down the street and suddenly get struck by something I said when I was 12 that really like improved the mood of the room. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you, you're most charming. <laughs> something, something really smart that I said to someone. Yes, that's Decades right. ago. Indeed, yes. And, and then what was the other one you mentioned? Uh, the availability um, heuristic. That's right. Yes, which is, uh, which is on display, um, you know, every day in our lives with regard to COVID, for example. But, you know, the, the idea, you know, for example, there are a lot of people who will not swim in the ocean because they're afraid of sharks. And, and the reason they're afraid of sharks is because of Shark Week and because of Jaws and because of, of um, you know, this how terrifyingly vivid it would be to be bitten by a shark. And yet, you know, the, the risk of a shark attack is, is almost nothing. The drive to the beach is much, much, much more risk, um, risky than, than the swim in the ocean. And so we, we have a tendency to, to be too fixated on these kind of available, vivid um, ideas that we have that often are, in, in, uh, sadly, in the world of media, pushed upon us with constant breaking news. Which is strange because certainly car crashes are featured in tons of, of movies and TV and, and those are portrayed. Well, maybe, I guess maybe they aren't portrayed as bloodily, but like, you know, if you thought about a car crash versus a shark bite, they, were, they would both be ridiculously traumatic and, and vivid. And but, but, but also, or every time a shark is portrayed on TV or in a film, or almost every time, it is with regards to danger. Yes. It, it's in the context of danger. Whereas, There's nothing mundane about a shark, ever. Yeah, whereas sh- driving in a car is, portray- is portrayed in a dangerous fashion, but is also portrayed a hundred times as much in just a way to get to the next scene or a great point yeah um yeah i'm that definitely has repercussions in politics as well i'm sure in terms of the the things that the fears that politicians are able to play on with the public to push their agendas indeed you know so um so one of i think you know whether you're red or blue or purple um you know, say what you will about make America great again. In, in some ways, it's a genius slogan because it, it plays on loss aversion. And the reason is, is that because we're so sensitive to losses, we often want to restore losses much more so than we want to pursue gains. And oh. so you can imagine make America great is a gain. Make America great again is restoring a loss and hence much more motivating than, um, uh, than you know, than its uh, its counterpart, and so that also could, explains see- why Biden's slogan of "Build Back Better," apart from just it sort of sounds corny, but isn't as effective, just because it's also just making you think about change constantly, like making you think about uh, switching things up. Yeah, I mean, also that yeah that that saying just hasn't cut through the clutter in the I think in the same in the same way. Yeah, yeah you saying that is the first time I have found out that he has a slogan <laughs> i didn't right. know it either i'm not kidding, I'm not kidding. Yeah. <laughs> the the republicans are substantially better at messaging and uh and sloganeering think about a think about like for example the, a death tax versus an estate tax 
right? Right. That's, uh, you know, so these are these are the kinds of things. So, so naming things. So my postdoc advisor was Danny Kahneman. Um, oh, who, wow. Who's one of the fathers of um, of behavioral economics. And um, so I arrived on, on the Princeton campus to do my postdoc a week before he won the Nobel Prize for, for these insights, including um, most notably loss aversion and some other things in, in a 1979 econometrics paper. But um, I always like to remind Danny that he didn't have a Nobel Prize before I arrived on campus. <laughs> um, and so... Uh, that that's a funny joke to him, but I. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I so I've done a lot of that work, and obviously, as you know, I've pivoted my career and my my interest into other things. But it really serves, um, and especially because I've done a lot of work on emotions and decision making. How do our emotions affect our judgments and choices? And so that's really the backbone of of a lot of the things that I do. And, and then that sort of parlayed into your research and interest in humor and what's going on there with both how it is generated and how it affects people. Indeed, yeah. So I, I took the, the fancy way I say this is I'm interested in the antecedents and consequences of humor, which is really just a, a fancy scientific way to say I'm interested in what makes things funny and how being funny is um, informs a good life. Mm, I like that. And, and, it, and informs one's uh, business practices. Potentially, yeah. <laughs> although I've, you know, I've pivoted that too in 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 many ways because I'm I don't know about you guys are professionally funny um, but I'm deathly afraid of trying to um, encourage non-professionals to be funny in the workplace that that's a sort of terrifying proposition to me well there is something about like humor is very effective at sort of softening a message or distracting a message or like you know helping to communicate something but humor that misses the mark makes people so much angrier than a st- I don't know whether that even plays into the sort of some of those heuristics that you were talking about a few minutes ago, but um, people get so cross or or so put off by an attempt at humor that fails compared to just talking s- straight, like just uh, neutrally. So I- can I, can I ask you guys? Do you, do you remember you know as professionals like kind of a joke or a situation where? a humor attempt went wrong in the way that you're talking about Matt which made people really upset. Well, I could I can I could think of individual jokes but I could also think of, you know, every comic has gigs that are just ugh. Oh yes. Uh, so yeah, I can I can think of a room full of angry people in Greenwich at Christmas. Uh I could think of uh I can think of a Manchester crowd. I can think of Three and a half thousand people at the Brixton Academy. That was a fun one. Ooh. Uh, was... <laughs> Can you share that one? Do you remember the specific that set them off? Oh, very clearly. Well, well, I did. I did two shows uh, opening for our buddy Jim Jeffries at the Brixton Academy, and show one was a, just a treat. It was a dream. It was lovely. And show two, the audience was still filing in. Also, there was a difference between the two audiences. Like, I think show one was actually an extra show that had been put on because the first one had sold out. So people were kind of more excited to be there. Ah, yes. Uh, and then show, I think show two, maybe they had a bit more entitlement in in their attitude, but also the timing was a bit different. People were still filing in when I went on. I I essentially got booed onto the stage. <laughs> and, That's brilliant. And, and I never really managed to round the corner after that one. So that was, but you know, that one was actually funny more to me more than 
Like, I, I've had other gigs that felt much worse than that one. Because that one was so ludicrous that I kind of didn't mind it. It felt... Bu- by by ten minutes in, I felt more like I was like a wrestling villain, or a pa- like or a pantomime villain, whatever, just like goading the audience to hate me. Whereas, uh, yeah, because like, like there's no there's no way I'm going to turn them around. So I would have loved to well, watch that show. That would have been so fun to be in the yeah, audience for. I might as well have fun with it, and also like knowing that Jim's going to come on after the break and. I knew he. I knew I wouldn't be ruining the show for him as well. Like that's the thing. Like I I knew that. The audience being riled up and mm-hmm. and hating me and me goading them and some people finding that funny, like maybe about a quarter of the audience finding that funny and three quarters of the audience being furious. But I knew that also that would actually, if anything, just energize the audience for Jim. Like I wasn't fucking him over, which was exactly what happened. Like he walked on stage and his first words were something like, you cunts or you assholes <laughs> or something like that. And it was just like kaboom, like huge laugh. And then he was in and he was away. So I didn't... Uh, uh, so, so that one was alright the, the ones that are far worse are the ones where you just sort of you just fuel the audience slipping away and, yeah, and it's in, just indifference not... is worse than anger in an audience I think yeah like, but, but then sometimes it really does turn to just people get really really cross or really upset at the idea you know where pe- even, even you see it when people are just discussing comedians or, or comedy shows that they dislike and they dislike it so much more passionately than they dislike a drama show that they didn't get on with. Indeed. You don't think you're selecting, there might be a little bias in the circle of people that you run with. I, I mean, maybe, but yeah, I, I, there's probably is some of that. I'm exposed far more to people's opinions on comedy than I am on drama. But, oh, but, but in also general, around more comics, like, I mean, does the average civilian get as worked up as we, as our friends oh, oh, no, do? You know, I see comedy? what you mean, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm including non-comedians in okay. that. I'm including okay. like, people like school friends and other people in my social media who aren't in the comedy world or from the comedy world or just things that people comment in general. And, you know, if you watch one of your comedian friends post something and then they're just the reaction is like, yeah, I love it. And then someone up and then people go like, fuck this, you know, it's just like <laughs> real anger at, at the idea of a comedian not hitting the mark for someone compared to, I think people who don't like game of Thrones don't get furious <laughs> right, at Game right. of Thrones, yeah. yeah. So or, or Star Trek, or you know, Star Trek's a good, I good example, I think, because people who like it are extraordinarily passionate about it, but people who dislike it aren't sort of vehemently angry at, at its existence. Yeah, that's right. Good. Before I get to, I want to hear. I don't mean to turn the table. I, you know, I have my own podcast, so I'm used to interviewing people, and I'm I'm more curious about what you folks have to say than I what I have to say for myself. But before I get to Andy's, can I just do a quick lesson on the benign violation theory that might spread, like might shed some light on this conversation? Yes, absolutely. So, so the thing about so first of all, the, the question of what makes things funny is an age-old question. It goes back at least to Plato and Aristotle, so 2,500 years. And so, frankly, people a lot smarter than me have been trying to crack the humor code. Folks like Thomas Hobbes and Immanuel Kant, Sigmund Freud wrote about it and so on. You know, the only advantage that, um, that, that I have with my co-creator, um, Caleb Warren, is that we can run experiments, you know, because of my, my psychology training. And the, the work that we've been doing builds on... Uh, a linguist work, Thomas Veach, and, and presents the following idea that we laugh at, we're amused by, we judge, hey, that's funny. Um, things that are wrong yet okay, things that are threatening yet safe, or what we call benign violations. And so 
Um, this, this is a powerful idea once you start to unpack it. For example, it explains uh, the two ways a humor attempt can fail. That is, it can be too benign and boring, right? Like a knock-knock joke. There's nothing wrong there. There's no arousal or threat. Or it can go too far. It can be too risque. It can be just a violation. It can be all wrong in that sense. Like, um, you know, like we've all done where we've crossed a line with a joke. But it also explains why the very same joke can make one person laugh, another person yawn, and another person, you know, want to throw tomatoes at Matt Kirshen. And, um, and the reason is because what's wrong and what's okay depends on a person's culture, their values, their beliefs, their lifestyle, and then also their context. So, for example, if that, you know, if that crowd was there to see Matt he gets a lot more leeway than a crowd that's there to see Jim Jeffries. Um, well, I, I would say more than that as well. It's they, their framing of you, which happens relatively quickly. Mm, yes. Like once someone, once someone, if someone likes someone, they are far more inclined to laugh at them. Yes, and once they're... someone's decided they don't like, like them, they, it's almost impossible to make someone laugh if you don't, if they don't like you. Yeah, it's easier to make a, in my vernacular, it's easier to make a violation benign. It's easier to take something that's wrong and see it as simultaneously okay when you like the person, you give them the benefit of the doubt, when you've had a couple drinks in you, when you're in a comedy club, and, and when you've been maybe laughing at their previous jokes that you found funny. And it, it, I think this reveals the complexity of what you guys do for a living. And it's why the average person probably shouldn't be doing it at work. <laughs> it, it's also, yeah, there's the, you, uh, you can see audiences turn sometimes where I guess their framing of someone changes because of something that they say or something that happens in the room. Yes. And then suddenly their, their um, scale on which they're evaluating someone, I guess, their, their sort of uh, meter moves. Yeah, it just yeah, takes I, one pedophile joke and now the whole room <laughs> has turned on you. Yep. Or saying something to an audience member that just goes, oh, that's a bit, oh, well, what? Oh, yes. Yeah, that's, picking, I, punching down. Right, right. I, I hadn't thought of this analogy when we first talked to you about the humor code because I think it wasn't as commonplace in the public discourse. But the Overton window, it's almost like every individual has their own Overton window of benignness and violationness. And uh, you know that, that varies. Like if you're telling a 9/11 joke um, on uh, in October 2001 in Brooklyn, you know it, it's well. I guess that's everyone's Overton window is going to be towards that is a violation. But if you're in a room where like one person is a 9/11 widow, another person is a Jim Norton fan who just wants the most. I don't know why I picked Jim Norton, but you know someone who wants like the cringiest thing. And everybody had the same joke will land differently because of where it falls on an individual's like your your own window slides from what well, is well, by, based all, on your own closeness to something temporally or spatially or whatever. Yeah. Well, it, it also depends on who is delivering that joke and how they're delivering it. For example, so like someone like Anthony Jeselnik can sort of I guess gets away with is sort of the wrong word, but you know what I mean, right. or the wrong wording. But he will. He will sell really harsh jokes to fairly mainstream audiences, partly because of just the quality of the joke, which I think gives you so much more leeway. And then, but then also because he delivers it with an, a level of charm and a level of wink to the audience that, I guess, in your analogy, would sort of shift that shift that window towards the benign way. 
Yeah, he has more license. He's built up a lot more um, license to be able to do these things um, in a way that I think the average comic has. Plus, he's a craftsman, which I think uh, I, I agree with you in, in that. In that yeah. So that so that does that would that also be covered by the theory, the idea that the better constructed the joke is and the better delivered the joke is, the more amenable to the violation someone is compared to the uh, uh, sort of the compared to if it wasn't delivered with such skill. Indeed, yeah, absolutely, because it's, it can be so su- subtle. Like, you can also be, you know, on this sort of razor blade dancing along. And so the, the, the choice of a word, or like you said, a wink or a nod or a smile can take what might be a violation and make it more benign. And so this is, uh, the problem is there's so many degrees of freedom when it comes to this. It's part of the reason why comics you know, in their in their toolkit is the constant experimentation that they're using night in and night out as they develop uh, a set, as they develop a joke, which is, oh, it just works much, much better when I do it in this order or when I move, when I when I smile in this way or if I don't pause or if I pause. And uh, and so, yeah, it's um, it, I yeah, think it's- it reveals the complexity. It's so odd that sometimes a joke will just not work and then I'll realize or someone will even tell me, oh, you just said this thing slightly differently mm-hmm. or you just even there's there's a couple of jokes where it's where it really is as simple as a pause before one word that are a slight tempo change that is enough to make it work or not work. Yes. One of the things that, I, that we talked about is that these that it works best when these appraisals happen simultaneously. That is that, you know, there's not. That you simultaneously can can see how it's wrong yet okay, um, and uh, and that's that's just hard. It's just hard to do. Um, Andy, you've had plenty of time to think about your your time that you've told a joke that it went horribly awry. Do you? <laughs> I actually I can't think of like all of my worst sets are just crowds that didn't really want to be there or I see. low energy that I then didn't come at with like okay I've got to come at them with high energy to to fix this i just sort of let my set fizzle out like i'm just thinking of triple runs like triple runs are what's a triple run uh, sorry uh, david triple is a comedy booker who books a string of one-nighters that are all over the american northwest and west so in the course of a week you might drive from a gig in central oregon to eastern montana and to the panhandle of idaho and they're all awful gigs i don't know what the business i don't, I don't know how he I'm sure he pockets more than 50% of what each of these venues are paying to make it worth his while. And then newer comics who are just hungry for stage time, it's sort of a rite of passage for them. Right. It's so low paying that if you're driving alone uh, and you're the feature as opposed to the headliner, you will take a loss because the gas will exceed your your pay. Uh, I see. So it's a, it's a bad idea. And when you're in Pocatello, Idaho for like 12 people who just want to do karaoke or whatever, whatever. And it's always crowds that don't want to be there. And sometimes it's like a combination, uh, or, or sometimes it, like in a casino where they're, I think obliged to, pro- to provide some kind of non gambling entertainment. <laughs> so those kind of sets, I can't think of specific jokes, but there was one night when I was in, um, somewhere in the tri cities in central Washington and Tribble got a call from the book, from the owner of the place after my first of like two or three nights asking why he, had booked me because I was so bad. And then, and then Tribble called me to, to ask why I was so bad. Ah. I don't know, but like, how is this supposed to make me 
be better tomorrow. I, I think I even said, well, you know, the crowd wasn't very, and he was like, don't blame the crowd. I'm like, well, I don't know. It was a shitty crowd. What do you want me to say? <laughs> like, it was, uh, so yeah, those are the kind of things that I think about when I think about the worst of comedy, but it wasn't like I said one thing that got people walking out or booing. It's, uh, I, I can, I can also think of specifically and this is this might be of interest to you particular peter in terms of things that make gigs work or not work and then we should move on to your more recent research but um i can think of two times that i had not good gigs at all in london in the last five years or so maybe a bit more and both of those occasions were like two particular occasions where in both times it was the third gig of a triple up in london where you know, you're doing three gigs in three different venues in London. You're sort of getting on the train, going to the next one and so on, uh, running between them. And both nights had exactly the same pattern where show one was decent. Show two was fantastic. Show three bombed. And, mm. and I, I, know, I know exactly what happened because what happened in each of those occasions was show one was pretty good and got me loosened up and gave me a certain amount of confidence and bounce. And uh, and uh, and so I went into the second one just a little bit more, just a little bit, just just a bit more confident, a bit more on it, a bit more um, just accurate, I guess, but a bit more on my game. And it really went well. And then show three, I just went on with too much confidence and... <laughs> And just because I had that second gig that was fantastic, and then I arrive at this third venue, but this third audience hadn't seen my second gig. <laughs> mm. I'm a completely new person to them, mm-hmm. and and I just went on with a bit too much swagger and a bit, and also just a bit too slow to get to the first couple of jokes because I was too confident in my ability to make them laugh, and so you didn't put in enough effort to win them round in the first minute or two. And just realized by the three minute mark, they don't like me and I'm in trouble here. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So I have um, so this is actually a good segue into into my new book in the in the following sense. I so the the book that I wrote is called Stick to Business. And it's it's essentially about not being funny, but about thinking funny. And it's it's lessons based upon. Uh, the practices and perspectives of the world's funniest people. But I have an epilogue in the book, and and in the epilogue I talk about what not to do, right? How what we should learn from comedians about what not to do in the world of business. And one of those is um, never blame the audience. At least never uh, blame the audience okay. to the audience. <laughs> right, right. Oh, right, right. You know, and so because the idea is this is if, if, the, if an audience or if a customer's not buying your product, it's not the customer's fault. It's, it's your fault in some, some way, shape, or form is the, the larger lesson. But I just have sat in, just cringing in audiences and then also pissed off as an audience member when, an, when a comic starts to berate the audience for not finding him or her funny, which never never gets anyone on your side and then just yeah. poisons the room for the next comic. And so I'm curious about your, your guys' experience doing that because, of course, you're going to have bad audiences. Yeah, there's nothing to be gained from pointing it out or for berating an audience for its size, which is the craziest because... You're they're there, the yeah. Did come. <laughs> you're not talking to the ones who didn't come, so... Yeah, I can see why that's never going to win people over. Unless you, you know, there are exceptions also. Like, I'm thinking of that Bill Burr Philadelphia yeah, show. Yeah, indeed. Where... <laughs> if you're going to walk the room, it's fine. Yeah. 
And he, he didn't even walk through them. He got them so happy when he just kept tearing into them and just telling them that they're awful and not even tempering it with like a wink, but just actually saying, you guys got a statue for a fucking fictional character from a movie? That's- <laughs> you know what it was? I think that the most, first of all, if anybody's listening to this, you can find this clip on YouTube. It's called The Philadelphia Incident. And I think one of the things about that, it reveals what a master Bill Burr is because he's a lot of the stuff that he's doing is completely improvisational. Um, and so he's just busting on to use like a childhood term of mine, this outdoor crowd that is just being really shitty. Yeah. And uh, it's fantastic. Well, he's also just calling the situation, which it is effective in any in any comedic context Mm. like sometimes just you know the simplest version is just doing a joke about something in the room you know just like the weird backdrop or whatever but just or or a joke about or breaking the ice with a joke about your appearance which is a fairly common thing to do particularly when you're new as an act Mm -hmm. but that is like you know he he is just going like he is explaining to them why and how they're shitty and (laughs) as much as they dislike him they're also like yeah, that is actually, you, you've accurately observed what's going on here. Yeah, I, I, I forget who told me this. Um, and it's like, if a, if a server drops a glass, you have to say something as a comic. About if you don't say something, that's weird. Yeah, that's a problem. The, the, there is, I think with anything sort of odd about the room, the, the, it's very odd to not mention an elephant in the room in any context, but particularly in a comedy show, like and that that's also why comics who have a distinctive look will generally mention something about their appearance just because like when i when i first started i looked incredibly young as a comic and Wait, i don't know maybe has i could have changed matt i'm not sure that's changed <laughs> i mean I, I i stopped joke i stopped opening my show by mentioning something about it when i once i got to the point that the youngness that i looked was still older than some comics who were doing it i see you know when I, when I was like 29 and easily passed for 22 but you'd be on the bill with a 19 year old then it's suddenly not really valid to mm. mention but when i was 23 and looked about 16 and you know i i could sometimes not mention it but i did feel maybe it was my paranoia but i would feel like if you don't mention it they're like does he not know <laughs> uh, and also or like what's going on here and then also it it is an easy laugh like it's an easy sort of calling your atten- calling yeah. the audience's attention to something like i yes we've both noticed this thing it's and then they can relax about it right you're criticizing yourself but because you're doing it it's yeah. okay you know it's uh, it's almost and, and you're also just mentioning something that they're you're, you're deflating something that they're uncomfortable about mm. the, the similar example would be I've done shows where there's a child in the audience, where someone has brought their kid to the show. <laughs> and that makes people incredibly uncomfortable, like an actual child, like someone who's maybe 10 or 11. Right. And people get really uncomfortable about that. And if you don't mention it, and you look, because they're being like the trendy parent, like, yeah, they've heard it all. And you're like, yeah, but I don't want them to hear it all in front of me. It's sort of, it's not, it's, I don't want to be included in this discomfort. So you do have to kind of refer to it. And that, that sort of takes the pressure out of the room. Yes, well, it's funny. So um, in, in Stick to Business, you said, so one of the things, you don't blame the customers as if they are the audience. What are some other lessons you can apply from comedy into 
Oh, yeah. So let me go into the positive ones rather than let's go into the do's rather than the don't do's. So um, I'll give you I'll give you three quick examples if I can. Uh, so the first one is so this is actually chapter one in the cha- and the chapter is called reverse it. So it's about the power of thinking in reverse. And so as comics, if, if you don't already have this intuition, you figure it out really quickly. And that is that producing a, an opposing perspective is a useful way to create comedy. So um, in Chris Rock's recent Netflix special, Tambourine, he has a bit about wanting to take his um, tween daughter out of junior high because of their strict no bullying policy. And what he does in this bit is he talks about the value of bullies. He claims over and over that bullies are good, that bullies help prepare children for a a challenging world. Teachers do half the work, bullies do the other half of the work. So he takes this thing that that everybody agrees on, which is bullies are bad, and he makes a a funny, convincing case about the value of bullies. Henny Youngman has a, a one-liner. He's, you know, he's, he, he was the self-proclaimed king of the one-liner. He said that when I read about the dangers of drinking, I gave up. What do you think he says he gave Re- up? Reading. He gave up reading. Of course, you come to that very quickly, Andy, because you're a comic. You think in reverse immediately. And, um, and I think that there is value in everyday people thinking in reverse. You know, thinking the opposite of what everybody else is thinking, in part because it's a great way to avoid that status quo bias that I mentioned earlier, right? And um, and then it's just another time that's often you know white space to play in. So, for example, um, uh, Tony Horton back in the in the night in the late '90s with P90X, right? P90X came at a time where the the health and wellness industry was was promising how easy it is to get fit, how easy it is to lose weight, right? You get stupid things like the thigh master or shake weight, right? Which have no effect. And what Tony Horton did with P90X is come along and say, no, it is insanely difficult to get in shape. And that, um, that product, not only because it worked, but, you know, it's like it stood out from the crowd as a, um, uh, as as a, as like, a useful thing to do. Let, let's brand that difficulty as a feature, not a bug. Exactly. Yes. So, and actually I talk about that in, in the book. I talk about comics are really good at turning bugs into features. So Matt already identified one of them is you have a baby face or you're, you know, you're too, you're too tall, you're too short, you're too fat, you're too skinny, you're too hairy, you're too bald. You take that bug, you make it into a feature with, with, a, with a bit of self deprecation. My, my favorite um, story about this is, um, is Neil Brennan's uh, recent Netflix special, Three Mics. Mm-hmm. So what Neil Brennan, if you don't know Neil Brennan, you know, he's, um, he's an incredible joke writer. He co-created Chappelle's show. You know, he's a writer on every one of those famous sketches that, that people know. And when he turned his attention to becoming a stand-up, he just had a harder time than his friends Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock, in, in part because, because Neil kind of comes off as cold, he doesn't have that right. warmth, that glow, that that I like. I want to be his friend kind of feeling you have with Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle. And so, rather than just trying to fake that warm warmth, he created a special based on his coldness called Three Mics, where he he does one liners at one mic, he does traditional stand up at a second mic, and the third and final mic, he talks about. Not in a funny way, he takes a serious approach to his coldness, his challenges in life, his, his struggles with mental health, his struggles with his family, 
and so on. And there are these really compelling uh, bits that he does. Um, like the first time I watched it, I cried. And um, oh. and that three mics gets better ratings than his friend Chris Rock's tambourine. It's um, it's incredible. He leaned into his his bugs and turned them into features. And you often see this in the world of business, for example. So one of my favorite stories about this is this Canadian cough cough syrup company um, that is called. Let me remember the name of it right now. I am. Ah, uh, oh, shoot. <clears throat> I just lost the name of it. It'll come to me. But the problem with it was it was sitting about number ninth in the marketplace. And one of the, the issues with this cough syrup is called um, is that it really tastes bad. Like it tastes <laughs> really, really terrible. So um, imagine you are um, you're, you're running this cough syrup company. You're at ninth in the market, which means basically you're dying a slow death. Right. Because, you know, people don't variety seek when it comes to cough syrup they just want the best stuff and uh boy i have that on the tip of my tongue and i cannot think of it right now um and so what they decided to do was turn this bug into a feature that is um they took the bad taste and they they pointed out that how good it was so they had this saying is it tastes awful and it works right which is basically the idea that um that it takes awful because because it works, right? We don't. Uh, Buckley's. I've Buckley's. Googled. Thank you so much. I apologize for forgetting that. But I. Um, so Buckley's basically vaulted to number one in the marketplace with very fun ads, which is like, um, not new, not improved. You know, <laughs> our largest size is 200 milliliters because any larger would be cruel. And they played on this idea <laughs> that medicine is not supposed to taste good. So rather than adding a bunch of cherry flavor to it, they leaned into their weakness and turned it into a strength. So what, what sort of, as, as a, psych, a psychologist originally, an experimental psychologist and uh, um, behavioral economist, what, what sort of heuristics is that playing on? What what? Well, in that case, you know, I, what I like to say is that people are associative machines, right? Okay. So we are very good. We're bad at a lot of things, but we're very good at making associations. And, and one of those associations t seems to be that, um, that sometimes things that are good for you are going to be bad, right? Like you have to go through some process. And so in both the case of, um, of Tony Horton and in, um, in Buckley's case, this idea of you want some good outcome, you're going to have to go through something bad, right? You know, that there's some association between hard and good, you know, or abrasive and good. The same is true with like, there's, there's a consumer behavior study that finds that home cleaning products that have a heavy chemical smell, people believe that they're actually cleaning more than ones that have sweeter scents, for example. And that makes sense. I've I've thought I've definitely had that thought. Like I've definitely like a strong sort of chemically bleach smell. Is like well, this is definitely this disinfecting is, this is better killing. than the one that smells of violets. Indeed, and and you know I think uh, the the other thing is that we we are we are seeking out good causal reasons. You know what I mean? We are looking for this works because X and, and in, in all of those cases, I'm not saying that all reversals are going to, to create this kind of system. Some reversals are just about finding blue ocean to swim in. I'll give you one last example um, before I tell you one of the other lessons. But um, 
these two Brooklyn-based entrepreneurs, they're actually designers, not engineers, decide to get into the smartphone market, which, which at first seems pretty crazy, right? So how do a couple designers um, try to outsmart Apple and Samsung in the smartphone market? You know, it just seems like an impossibility. And so what they do is they think in reverse. They think like a comedian. And rather than making a smartphone, they create the dumb phone, known as the light phone, too. And this is a phone that actually strips away features. And it's for the kind of person who doesn't want to be more connected, but rather wants to be less connected. So I spoke to one of these one of these uh, founders and he said to me, you don't need to bring a microcomputer to the farmer's market. You know, you just need something that you can text, do directions, and, and get a phone call on. And so it allows you to be more present. Which I, I've been tempted to <laughs> dip my toe in, into that because, uh, like all of us, spending way too much time on my phone, especially this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's a, that's a potential benefit um, that's there. So, so, I, so I actually created – so I have a workbook that people can download for free on my website, petermcgraw.org, that has – a for example, has a, um, a task in it that you can use. And I do this with my consulting sometimes where I do what's called shit storming or the HR friendly term shtick storming, which, <laughs> which is like brainstorming truly terrible ideas. So it's a good warm up for any sort of innovation process because it's sort of fun. There's lots of laughs. Um, it removes the, the concerns we have about brainstorming, which is we're going to be criticized for for, you know, oh, that's not a very good idea. But no one can criticize your bad idea. Like when someone says that's not a truly terrible idea, that's not much of an indictment. And then every so often (laughs) someone says, you know, that's so crazy. It just might work. (laughs) And and when you think about world changing innovations are often seen as crazy at first. Right. Airbnb, when it first came out, people were like, you're going to let someone sleep in your bed. That's crazy. It will never work. Right. And now we have, you know, this world changing innovation. Right. So what are some other of the lessons from your book? Sure. I'll, I'll just give you two a little bit quicker ones. Um, so one is called uh, in uh, chapter two, I call it create a chasm. And I think you guys have sort of been alluding a little bit to the, to this idea, which is that um, you can't make everyone happy with a joke. Right. If you try to make some a joke that everybody finds funny, you basically make a joke that no one finds funny. Right. And, and so what happens is comedians are hyper aware that their audience in front of them must be laughing and they care less or not at all about the the rest of the world. And so they're good at creating a chasm that is to make their audience happy and know by virtue of making their audience happy, they're going to disappoint non audiences. And so I think that. Um, you know, like, I'm it, not sure that's an accurate representation of a comedian's mind. I, I think I, I think comics focus on nothing but the people who aren't laughing <laughs> or, or don't like them. Oh, no, no. But I'm saying is they should be focused on the paying audience and making those folks laugh. Right. Rather than the, the people not in the audience. You know what I mean? The people doing commentary after the fact or whatnot. Okay. That, that's, that's my only point about this, that, you know, like when you do a, a stand up special, you know that it's important for the people who want to watch it and who like you, that they find it funny and that it's just impossible. You know, for as, as well received as three mics was, not everybody likes three mics. You know what I mean? Like Neil Brennan can't turn everybody onto his side. 
Um, so I, I like Andy Kaufman as kind of an example of this. You, right. you know, like you either think he's a madman or a genius, you know, or a genius madman. But, you know, um, but Andy was so committed to the craft that he would lean into these very uncomfortable bits for in order to make the magic that's there. And so you see this with example. Um, well, so I like this. I have this saying is like, don't make warm tea in a world that wants hot tea or iced tea. You know, pick one. Don't serve the world warm tea. Um, so I'm, I'm, I live in Los Angeles nowadays. And, and pre-COVID, I went, I went to Barry's Boot Camp one day, which was down the street from where I live. And I found out, you know, Barry's Boot Camp doesn't serve warm tea. So for people who aren't familiar with it, it's like kind of this hit-based workout. So you do these hard runs on the treadmill, and then you're down in the, in the fitness room lifting weights and doing calisthenics and stuff. And it's just a bizarre experience if you've never been there. It's sort of like working out in a nightclub. So, you know, like it's like super loud kind of club music. It's so loud that when I went there, I like went to the front desk and asked if they had earplugs because my head was spinning. And they just nonchalantly handed me earplugs. You know what I mean? Like, you know, they weren't going to turn down the volume to make me happy because if they turned down the volume to make me happy, the other young people in the room would have been disappointed because they love the loud music. You know, it's also bathed in this red light. You know, it, it really feels like you're working out in a club. And the red light has this other effect, which is you look fabulous in red light. It just right, hides all right. of the blemishes, right? It's like, it's why the red light district is called the red light district. And so, like, guys take their shirts off in there and, like, working out shirtless in the, in the room. And so you could just see how the people who like Barry's don't just like it, they love it. And then the people who don't like berries are like, I'm never coming back to this place. <laughs> you know, so they're not afraid to create a chasm. Um, and then the last one is, I'll, I'll just say, is a, a chapter called Write It or Regret It. And I think this is, in, in some ways, it's, it's, it's such an important chapter for a business book because business books don't talk about the power of writing. And the masters of comedy care a lot about writing. And, and I like to joke that um, the most important tool for a comic is not a microphone, it's a notebook. And the, the value of capturing ideas, writing to clarify ideas, and then writing to be able to communicate ideas. And how the behind the scenes elements of, of for example, stand up is often done during the day and that that writing process is super critical. And I think that the average person and certainly the average business could stand from, could stand to do a lot more writing in order to to better clarify those ideas because writing requires precision in a way that speaking doesn't. What's a sort of uh, example of, of, of using that? You're saying write even when there is no written deliverable yes. in the project you're working on. Or, or if there's an eventual one, but do it early. So I'll give you two quick examples. So anytime I have a big project idea, I write a one-pager for it. So in that workbook, I actually put the one pager for that book and for my book, Stick to Business, and the one pager for the humor code. So when we were working with my co-author, Joel Warner, I were working on the humor code. We took six weeks to write the one pager before we wow. even worked on the proposal. We wrote the book proposal in two weeks, in part because we locked in the idea, the tone, the audience, what the book was going to be about. In the, in the world of business, Jeff Bezos at Amazon requires his product managers to write a press release for any new product idea. 
So before they even get started on the product, they write the, the press release that would go out to the world about this. And then they decide whether it's worthwhile to pursue the product release. Excuse me, to pursue the product. Development. Exactly. Based upon how much that press release pops. Is it newsworthy? Does it solve a big problem? Can they sell it? And, and so on. Interesting. That makes sense. It's, and it's the hardest thing to force yourself to do. But, uh, of course, it's valuable. Indeed. Yeah. So you also, um, I feel like most of our interactions this year have been post that book's release and when your attention has been redirected into your newest project. I should also mention that Peter was living out in the desert for, uh, what is it, a combined probably two or three months two, of Yeah, two of months COVID during times. the first lockdown, indeed, yeah. Yeah, so we would we would go for hikes together, socially distant hikes, um, and talk about your latest endeavor, your podcast solo. Yes, and we would have long conversations about um, about the science of COVID, in which I was optimistic and Andy was pessimistic, and it looks like um, Andy won. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I remember back in April, you were like, "This is this is not uh, real." Or you, I'm sorry, you didn't say it's real. <laughs> you, you knew it was real, but you thought that. Or what was your? Take I thought that? it was. I thought we were overreacting. I, I'll right. be honest and say I was wrong. And it's it's actually one of the lessons I've learned, sort of more generally, and I should apply it more strictly. Which is, I just I I don't believe the average person should be in the business of predicting the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we should be focused. And actually, I did a whole bunch of writing and and um, thoughts on this idea that we should be focused on our ability to withstand an uncertain future or capitalize on a, uh, excuse me, to withstand a negative future or capitalize on a positive future. But the idea of trying to predict whether it will be positive or negative is a largely worthwhile, worthless endeavor. And so that was yet again thrown back in my face. Not by Andy, he's quite gracious. But, um, <laughs> but I throw it back in my face all the time. Like, boy, I was wrong about this. I'll throw it in my friend who is more abrasive than you are in his face uh brian cook who I, i'm not sure if we've had in the podcast but i was at a we've concert had him on at least i think probably twice oh okay yeah. uh, <laughs> but we were at a concert on march 11th and the 13th is when everything fell apart the stock market crashed and even that concert was half empty uh and i kind of knew we shouldn't be there but i also knew it was the last time i was going to be in a bar for a very long time uh-huh. and, and brian <laughs> Brian called me all kinds of names I won't repeat here when I told him that that's going to be the case. And he's like, you're scared. I'm like, no, I'm not scared. I'm just saying we're not going to be doing this for a very long time. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying I'm afraid of it or it's just that's the reality. We're seeing Soul Asylum in a half-empty room. And this isn't going to happen for the rest of this calendar year probably. Yeah, indeed. So, yeah, so we have been, uh, we've, we've been in a lot more con- just through happenstance that we happen to be a few miles apart during the quarantine, which, you know, you were – like one of the only people I saw for two months. And so I really appreciate those hikes. Yeah, that was a very interesting time of just, yeah, the, I, I remember those hikes fondly, but also the mindset that I was in and just like every every waking moment, I was just spinning about what the future might bring, which of course isn't productive, but how do you stop yourself from coming up with all kinds of theories about how things could go right or wrong? And uh, yeah, but, but anyway, so we also talked about your podcast solo about living a an, an unapologetic uh single life yes indeed before i get into this matt uh, oh, may sure. i ask are you single i'm not okay no. all right well i'm sorry, uh, but I'm sorry by to, the way i'm sorry to hear that by, 
<laughs> it happens. Uh, by the way, I uh, I was wrong. We've only had Brian on the show once, but we have okay. had him on the show. Well, it's time to get him back on and, and it's a glow. talk shit to yeah. him. <laughs> um, so you see what I did there? You see my reversal, which normally you, you congratulate someone for being in a relationship um, in that way. So one of my reversals is when someone tells me they're divorced, I say congratulations. Um, but I, uh, yeah, so this is something that... Uh, that is, I think I would call it a passion project, um, but it's, it has quickly consumed much of my life. Um, so I'm on leave right now um, from being a professor. So a lot of my sort of daily professorial duties have been put aside. Um, and I launched, uh, I kind of soft launched it in December of, of 2019, but it really got rolling in at the early 2020, is this podcast called Solo, The Single Person's Guide to a Remarkable Life. And in short, it's... Uh, it's designed to celebrate single living, to destigmatize our time on this planet as single people, and to provide an alternative narrative than the one that we see um, around uh, Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving uh, Day table, or that we see and in, in hear in um, in the media. And I have been pleasantly surprised. I've, I have to admit, I launched it with some hesitation because it's not. It's sort of taking my backstage world as a bachelor. I've never been married and never have kids and bringing it to my front stage world and to talk about these things in a in a sort of genuine, as you said, I like this word, um, Andy, unapologetic way. And I've just been of all the projects I've ever done in my life. It's the one that receives the most unsolicited thanks and encouragement. That is that there's just a bunch of people out there who um, who have been appreciating an alternative narrative about single living. You, you are also, you are Andy's go-to psychologist question person. Because <laughs> I know that, because like, there's been a few times that Andy's had a question about like, like there was one about changing habits, I think, a few yes. months ago. Yes, um, Yeah, indeed. I'm, I actually you know what's interesting is I've been sort of feeding the podcast a lot with that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? So and, and the other the other previous book. Um, so, yeah, so I I think, you know, I'm 50. I turned 50 this year out in the desert. And um, I think that it was actually turning 50 that that led me in part to launch this podcast because what I got to thinking is turning 50 as a bachelor and, and living a good life. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, when I look back on my life, I'm sort of, I, I'm really, really quite grateful that things have turned out so well. And I wanted to create a resource for people, like the kind of things that I wish I knew when I was 35 or 25, you know what I mean, that, that I can do. And then just also just provide as I said, you know, some encouragement. So people, isn't it really terrible that some people think that because they're single, they're somehow less than, that they're a failure, or that people who've had a relationship that, that didn't work out, that somehow they felt they feel like they failed in some way, when really the creation of marriage is just a social construct. You know what I mean? It's not something that was necessarily had to be. And so we're, we're living in a world, as I like to to talk about a world of fictions, um, but these things seem seem really quite real and quite important, but rather are quite arbitrary. 
Well, I should point out you're not anti-marriage. Uh, to quote you, you you just think marriage is overprescribed. Yes, that's exactly right. What I think is this is that again, in a world that wants hot tea, in a world that wants iced tea, if we tell everybody that they should be drinking hot tea, we're doing a disservice to the iced tea drinkers. And so what I think is, I think marriage is fine. Actually, I know, I know very happily married couples and I know people who thrive within marriages. But I just think that when, when nine out of 10 people try to do anything, it's probably not the right fit. And so what I want to do is say, whether it be the case, as I say, for now or forever, think of the, the good and think of the good fit that being single can have for you. And which has this actually ironic benefit that if you lean into your singleness and, um, you know, and learn to play an instrument or, you know, um, build a business or, or study for a master's degree or, or travel the world, you know, whatever it is that you, that you can do, it actually makes you a better person and has the ironic benefit of actually making you a more appealing potential partner. Um, have you seen, friend of the show daniel sloss's last but one special i have yeah so if you could get me in touch with him i've sent a few messages to him i want to have him on the podcast because um you know he has this counter on his website of the number of people he's broken up and the number of divorces (laughs) he's caused i think he would be like the perfect guest for solo but i can't get anyone from his shop to ever respond to me but yeah um he has this whole bit about how sort of relationships are overrated uh, yeah, and it, but but also similar point to you where he's he doesn't say relationships shouldn't happen and he doesn't think all marriages should break up just the bad ones mediocre yeah. mediocre marriages because people think that's what you should do absolutely yeah so he and I are like kindred spirits or whatever you know um, in in terms of that he just happens to be way way funnier and more persuasive. Because I'm, I'm not trying to break people up. I'm just trying to get people to feel good about their state of the world. And I want them to, to um, as I say, like have a different story um, than the one that we're normally fed. Right. By the way, I, I don't know if this is, uh, I guess there's no reason why we couldn't talk about this. But you, you're pretty active on this new social media platform, Clubhouse, that's all audio-based conversations, like live audio chat rooms that uh, ostensibly should be based around topics as opposed to just being any kind of chat. And you've been having a lot of uh, solo chats, conversations within that app. I'm curious, have you heard any really compelling things that have made you change your perspective on, on the fact that like, obviously you're not going to change whether you think it was good for you, but like, have you heard any arguments for why, your philosophy wouldn't work if it were applied to all of society. No. Nothing at all that's ever made you... Well, so the issue is this is like... I, so, so this is where my behavioral science scientist hat gets put on. So, for example, I always want to go to the data, right? So, so, I will, so my first part, before I get to the data, Andy, I'll answer your question in a less cheeky fashion. Um, what happens is, so yeah, I'm on, I'm on this app Clubhouse. It's in the beta stage, but I'm, it's a really fascinating place, and there's a lot of 
really interesting, ambitious people. And what I realized very quickly is that these people have challenges around relationships. And I mean, first of all, the average person has challenges around relationships because right. it's just hard to do relationships. It's hard to match up in a way that's there. And no one ever trains us on how to do relationships well. You know, our schools don't do it. You know, half of our parents do it terribly, right? So we don't even have good role models in that sense. But the other thing is like these are these are this is a lot of like twenty somethings, thirty somethings, forty somethings on the app. I'm sort of the old guy in the room typically. These are people who are already hard to match because they are so elevated in some ways. Like they're super good looking and they're super ambitious and they're doing like all these amazing things. And the sort of you know, the sort of better you get at life, the harder it is to find someone there. And then the other one is it's hard to fit someone into a life that is filled with ambitions and building things and so on. So when I got on the app and started hosting these rooms, I actually have a club. It already has like a thousand people in it. People started just piling into these rooms and sharing their stories and, and sort of applauding the fact that they found like-minded people. Because as I like to say, at any one Thanksgiving um, day dinner table they're alone and everybody's like why are you still single you're so great why are you still single but you can get into this room where each of those single people at uh, you know a hundred different thanksgiving table can come together and 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 talk about you know both the benefits and the challenges of this and and to be honest like when someone tries to come at me and, and talk about the value of relationships i can come at them with the data and, and essentially, the data looks something like this. If you look at the, the, the work, let's talk about marriage specifically, because sure. that's where most of the research has been done. And also because, you know, the majority of people marry, even though that, um, that, is going, that number is going down and they're delaying marriage. Um, so the, the research on marriage concludes that, that married people are happier than single people and happier than divorced people. The problem is all of that research is flawed. And, and it's flawed for, <laughs> for the following reason. It's almost always done by married people who start out with the belief that marriage is better than being single. Um, the second thing is all of that research is correlational. That is that indeed the correlation suggests that married people are happier. The problem is, is you can't run experiments. You can't randomly assign people to marriage or non-marriage. And so you have to unpack the data in different ways. And when you, when you look at the data longitudinally, you find a very fascinating thing. So first of all, married people are only slightly happier than single people on average. And divorced people are much less happy. Um, so the first thing is like, yes, ordinarily you find that to be the case, but, but um, for any one person, their happiness is unlikely to be affected by being married, married or single too much. The second one is when you look at married people's happiness before they get married, they tend to be happy people to begin with. And so the story is happy people tend to get married and stay married, unhappy people Get, get married and then get divorced, but it's more likely to case that it's their unhappiness that leads them to divorce rather than divorce per se. Oh, so this right. is a, the classic correlation versus causation. Absolutely. Problem. Yes, absolutely. And so, so once you, and then once you start looking at single people, you start to find all these amazing things about their relationships. For example, single people are actually more connected 
than married people. They have a wider array of people that are more interconnected. So as, um, as uh, I'd like to say, and this is not my quote, married people have the one, single people have the ones. And so the idea of like the single person who is just lonely and has no friends and no dates and nothing to do is largely bullshit. These are people who are more likely to volunteer. They give more of their money they actually volunteer. They actually contribute to society more than um, than married people, um, and they have a wider array of like hobbies and interests and and so on. In part because they have the time and energy and resources to do this, and then you can look at at the numbers, and the numbers are striking. Hundred and twenty eight million adults in the United States are single. Half of those people are not interested in dating. That is, they're not interested in trying to find that person because they're working on other things or they're at a stage in their life where that's not an important endeavor. 28% of households in the United States are solo, one person in it. That's a number that is growing exponentially. In Northern Europe, that number is high as 50% in like a city like Stockholm. And so what we're seeing is this explosion of single people in part fueled by the rise of innovation, that is that you can get along in life a lot more. And, and certainly one of the places that we've seen this is because of industrialization. And I'll stop with this idea. Essentially, marriage came about as a way to transfer land. It was designed as a, designed as a utilitarian thing for societies. And so essentially what happened was um, agriculture essentially created these gender roles that we know so well, where women stayed home and became baby machines and men went out and toiled in the, in, um, in the fields, neither of which is good for the average person um, in the long run. And so um, what has happened as we moved into industrialization and women, women's equality, birth control, the rise of technology has allowed people to pursue a diverse array of of things that are both good for them economically, but also for them personally. And we've seen as a result, more people delaying marriage, um, not getting married and so on. And so I just think these people need a conversation and no one, you can correct me if I'm wrong. No one is having this conversation besides me and Daniel Slosh. Slosh. <laughs> <laughs> no one in the world. I, I see the, the only thing that I, I don't even know what my, real stance is on this um and i'm not saying this i'm going to give this argument purely as devil's advocate or to try to steel man the opposing side the only thing that gives me pause is uh this is great to have for individuals and certainly there are lots of individuals who should be reassured that this is a perfectly great way to live your life uh we did a story recently about the impact of population decline and what that's going to be in the next hundred years and i guess maybe this is more about having offspring than it is about partnering up for life. So maybe these are two different things. I shouldn't act as though they're one. But uh, if everybody took this opinion, which they're not going to just because you compellingly put it out there, there's still going to be lots of people who want to get married. But if, 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 if birth rates drop enough, we have this upside down economy that it's predicted will be devastating even though we have an overpopulation problem now if it's solved by suddenly they're just not being babies then we'll have this rapidly aging populace and no economic base to support them as they age and no people to care for them and i mean i'm just giving a worst case scenario but like how would you answer 
applying this good individual thing to a large scale and having it not tear apart society. Okay, so um, I, I have two reactions to that. Actually, I appreciate you pushing me on this. So first of all, you're giving me way too much credit about the, my ability to counter the overwhelming <laughs> force that people feel to get married and have children. Um, you know, to me, I'm just trying to provide an alternative perspective for, especially for the people who are single by choice, which is, I think, self-identified in some research about 15% of the population of the, of the population. But, um, so I would love to have that problem. If I could single-handedly push down marriage and birth rates, <laughs> um, I would be quite proud. But, um, so my, my reaction to this is, is twofold. I think that there are alternative solutions to a low um, birth rate, especially a low replacement rate, which seems to be the, the major problem that um, industrialized nations, you know, uh, much of Europe, Japan, um, increasingly the United States and so on. And the first one is I actually think that immigration is a, is a very good solution to this. Um, and I think that it's, it's beneficial in two ways. Um, one is, is that it helps pull people out you know what I mean, of bad situations and into better opportunities. Um, I, I think about this with Japan, especially, you know, Japan has this um, graying population, but they they are reluctant to it's such, you know, it's such a, a nationalistic place. It's just a lot of reluctance to to have. It's also an island, but people are you know reluctant to have immigration there and immigrants fuel growth. So immigrants start businesses at twice the rate that non-immigrants do. And so there, it's doubly beneficial. One is you can bring in that tax base, right? But also you, you also fuel growth, which is really the thing that we care about, right? And so children are a way to fuel growth, but there are alternative ways to fuel growth. Um, mm. That's the first one. And then the second one is I think that we're not giving innovation enough of a chance more generally to solve the problems of, um, of aging populations. And so it used to be the case you had children in order to take care of you when you grew old, which, by the way, is a pretty terrible insurance policy. It's a little strange if you boil it down to that. Yeah. yeah. You know, and so then the question is, can we then do a better job of serving older adults in terms of um, in terms of making their lives better, you know, whether it be through health care, housing, support community um and and so on so what i think and i'm not a demographer you know i mean i'm not um i'm not the ideal person to answer this question but you have me thinking about other ways to to answer the question is how do we find a way to fuel growth and innovation that's not just putting more babies on the planet because let's be honest the average baby doesn't turn out to actually help the world very much <laughs> Well, I mean, everybody who I don't know how macroeconomics works, but like, I don't know if any, anybody who has a job is, is at least some cog in the machine. Right. I don't but know. But it's a it's, it's the inputs versus outputs. Right. What are you taking? What are you giving in that sense? But just oh, right, to right. just to bring things back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show. Immigration is a classic example of something that plays on and can be and can it be exploited by bad actors those uh, heuristics we were talking at the beginning that loss aversion and availability uh and so on it just um, yes. it very much plays on those ideas of wanting to keep things the same and yeah and also stories about bad immigrants being prevalent in the news thanks to 
right-wing press. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. You know, like um, an immigrant is seen as competition. A baby is not, right? Very simply put. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes, that's right. Um, And even though the expected value of an immigrant, because you have control over who immigrates into your country or not, is higher than the average baby. Oh, interesting point. Right? Because you can bring an engineer who you know is going to create value. Or, although, or, although there are there are issues with that because those sort of points based immigration systems are firstly end up being like quite like racist and dodgy in their application, but also also they're quite short sighted because the, it's the same thing when people try and work out what degrees or what school lessons we should focus kids on. It's it's very much it seems like cargo cult thinking. It's sort of reverse engineering of just like oh this is good, do more of. This this person who did this is now successful, so do more of that. Whereas who knows what we will need more of in 10, 20, 30 years' time. That's fair, but... Um... And, and also what those people will produce. You know, it's sort of like this idea that if we, own, uh, if we only let in people with advanced degrees, then it'll make soci- our society substantially advanced, whereas if we don't... Uh, if we let in people who don't have that, then it'll just bring the country down. And that just doesn't, the data doesn't bear that out. And also it's an unpleasant way to think. Um, so but what you're saying, I mean, but I, I think, look, the United States is a country built on immigration, right? And so, um, you know, there, this is part of this, at least the United States DNA, you know what I mean? And so um, what you're saying is like, we need to get the the policy right, um, we know that shutting it down completely is not good. We know that letting it run amok is also not good. There's something in between. Um, we don't we don't do that much in terms of um, who has babies and stuff like that. That's something that we you know keep our hands off of. And so I think it's a matter of getting the policies right. And I agree with you that they can be perverse. I mean, to me, the the ideal way you create a policy is you create the policy and then you let the opposite party run it. You know what I mean? That's the best way to, to, to so it doesn't become politicized and so it doesn't become, you know, a tool for. Um, Sorry, how does that how does that work? Well, the best you, you, I mean, the best policies, right, the best the best sort of rules of government is in, that, that are that are truly nonpartisan are ones in which you let your quote unquote enemy run it. Right. So it's not. So then you what you end up doing is you end up creating something that is good for society, not good for your particular um, perspective, like like dividing up a cake. I cut you. Exactly. It's that it's of that kind of uh, thing. And so what ends up happening is um, what ends up happening is that 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 politicians, they create policies that are useful for them and for their constituents, which ends up further driving things apart. And so this is just a way to, I'm not saying it's easy to do, but I'm saying that the ideal immigration policy would be one that either party is happy to, not happy to have, but, but that doesn't um, overly benefit or, or create cost to the other one. Now, I'm, I have to admit, I'm completely outside my expertise at this moment. <laughs> I feel like this is my fault. For no, no, it's fine. It's actually it's a, it's, a, it's a worthwhile question. And I would say this again, as I said, it would be a good problem for me to have if they were just like this podcast is causing the birth rate to plummet. <laughs> 
which is not the goal of the podcast. It's not in the, the subtitle in in uh, the iTunes uh, podcast app. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> it's a, uh, it's a single person's guide to a remarkable life. I mean, you, my yeah. I'm being revealed as a psychologist. Like psychologists are care about the individual. Like I, you know, the sort of systemic type stuff. I have no solutions for. I just want to help a group of people live a better life. Yeah, and it's definitely a group that. W- should not be shamed and is always going to be extant. So yes, it's a, it's a very uh, admirable task. And I, I was not, I was not at all like <laughs> holding your feet to the fire over its existence. I was more just like seeing if anybody's given you any, like we were in one clubhouse chat and then Brett Weinstein, the podcaster uh, took the mic and sort of just did a quick case for why no one's life could have meaning without children. Then just did a mic drop and left. Yeah. Like, oh, that's, it was totally interesting. worthless. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, but it's like the idea, you know, to me, like Brett Weinstein's a smart guy who ha- happens, I suspect he has children. And so, yeah, again, does, you know, like the idea that everybody should have kids is crazy to me. You know, first of all, not everybody has the resources to have kids. Secondly, not everybody has the like bio- biological makeup. Like imagine if you were born bipolar and you don't have a ha- you don't have a handle on your, um, you know, on, you know, on your bipolarity that's not a word but you know what i mean oh, it probably is you know like that person should be having children i think that that's that's a lot to ask of that person you know what i mean like or someone like i'm not clear i'm not sure that that we want our great artists and great scientists and and supreme court justices and so on having having lots of children like i kind of want them working on their craft you know what i mean the world (laughs) is a better place in some ways for some people to lean into the things that bring them joy their calling and and so on so i just don't think everybody has the temperament the biology the resources or even the calling to have children not everybody not every woman is a nurturer and not every dad not every you know to use to use um traditional gender roles not every man is a good provider and 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 so on and vice versa you know what i mean and so the idea that like the meaning that children bring you um is a reason to have kids is um it's absurd to me that that but it's just you know it is it's shallow thinking and just because brett weinstein is incredibly smart um and knows a lot about evolutionary biology and so on doesn't mean that he has this worked out because he just believes the same fiction that the average person does and I, I don't want to call him out specifically, but I do remember that yeah, just, that moment. That was an interesting, um, and it was yeah. a little annoying that there was no like, "Hey, let's uh, let's chat a little bit about this." Where I get to to yeah, put forth yeah. that there are more. Like, imagine the person who you know. Imagine um, Mother Teresa. Oh, but she was a nightmare person. There's a. <laughs> Like all the stuff that's come out about her off, like during and after her death, oh. it turns out that she was an incredibly bad human being. Well, you know, I mean, also by the way, a lot of our, you know, I mean, a lot of our our um, titans of industry are terrible human beings. There, there is something about being disagreeable that helps people build a billion dollar business that provides tremendous value to the world. Maybe that's not the, exactly the kind of DNA you want in a dad. And so I, I just, you know, I'm just saying is, again, it's overprescribed. It's not the case. No one should do this, but it's also shouldn't be the case that everyone should do this. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's my point. You can tell, you can see how much more passionate and, um, and um, uh, excited I am about this as, we, uh, as we've it's, gotten into it. 
it's so interesting because it's it's also one of those things like I guess when I'm thinking of singlehood, I'm also thinking of childlessness, which are not the same no, thing. Right. But um, yeah. the child thing, it's it's this club that you can't dip your toe in. You can't just try you it out to see how it feels. You can't experiment. And then well, some people do. In, but they <laughs> I mean, yeah. But it's just so interesting because it, it it it's just it stands to reason that once you're in it, you're going to make the best of it, and then and it stands to reason it's going to bring out good things in you, and then therefore you're going to be. A, 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 an acolyte of it or a proselytizer for it, you know, so that, that, that in and of itself isn't, it's, it's, it's just impossible to actually unpack whether it would be the right thing for you without trying it. And once you've tried it, you're of course going to make the best. It's of it. true. So it's, yeah. It's, it is it's a, it's a, it's a true paradox. I think in this way, yeah. I also think that if you also don't know how good your single life can be and your childish life can be, unless you lean into that, and, and yeah. take advantage of it, right? That's some of the, the positivity that I want people to have, which is, you know, if you go, if you just try to live a single person's life in a world that is pushing everyone to marriage and you don't take advantage of your singleness, now, now that's opportunity costs. Good point. Right? So, so um, you know, if you, don't, if you don't use your mobility to move to the place that you want to live. And in, in, in a case, you know, I know a lot of married couples. I have a friend, a very dear friend, who is suffering in Edmonton because his wife has a job in Edmonton. And so he's freezing his ass off and he likes warm weather. Um, you know, he's doing that because he is happily married and he adores this, this woman and, and um, wants to build a family with her. Um, but if, if, if you live in Edmonton and you don't like the cold and you're a single person, it, it would be a mistake to stick around. Yeah. 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 So use it if you've got it because you might not have it someday and you'll wish you'd used it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I think we want to, we want to walk a path of the, and I don't know. And the issue though, of course, is, and I've gone deep, deep into this as a behavioral scientist, which is what makes a good life. And the issue is there's not just one way to live a good life. You have to find your good life. Yeah. That seems like a pretty solid place to wrap things up. <laughs> All right. And also, I think so. Also to recommend that listeners go check out your podcast solo, which you can find, I'm assuming, anywhere podcasts are. That's right. Yeah. So and then, uh, and then what else? Where else can listeners find you? Um, I, you know, petermcgraw.org. I was I was late to getting a website, so some other fool got petermcgraw.com. So petermcgraw.org has information about my book, Stick to Business, has the podcast, um, and then a bunch of other stuff that I do. I'm on Twitter at Peter McGraw. Um, find me on Clubhouse once you get in. Excellent. As always, you can find us at probablyscience.com, uh, on Twitter at probablyscience, individually at Andy T. Wood, at Matt Kirshen. Probablyscience at gmail.com is the email address for any questions, comments, clarifications, and stories you'd like us to cover in future episodes. Andy, anything else to plug? Um, oh, go get a shingles vaccine. Ah. I've had shingles for the last week, and it's awful. <laughs> I, I didn't know that. I didn't tell you that. Oh, well, maybe maybe next podcast we can talk about the medis, the medical science behind it. But it's it's a recurrence of the chickenpox virus, and it's no fun. And I think it usually occurs later in life, and I'm a little young for it. But if you're over 50, um, I think it's worth it to get the shingles vaccine because it's uh, <laughs> it's a not pleasant experience. I got the shingles vaccine within a week of turning 50. What? You got it this summer? I got it. No, actually, no, you're right. And it wasn't a week within. It was a week with, within getting back from the desert. But still, I didn't know that. Oh, man. Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, I took uh, three, three days into it. I finally went to the ER and got 
antivirals, but even that might be a little too late. So a week, I'm a week into it, and it's still pretty painful, and it might have facial scarring. We'll see if these things clear up or not. But <laughs> uh, hang in there. I'm sorry to hear that. Oh no, it's uh, you know it happens. But um, hey, you have a new be... self-deprecating joke now. Right. If it does scar, weirdly, it also appeared. I have a picture of the side of my face from when I gave myself my first quarantine haircut, so I can compare before and after. And like one of the sores is exactly on my biggest chickenpox scar. So I don't know if your body is like gonna send it back to the place it struck most when you were a kid, but it's really bizarre that it's exactly on the site of this like pea-sized chickenpox scar I had the side of my face. This is for another podcast probably, but. Um, yeah, check out uh, everybody on social media and get a vaccine for shingles. <laughs> is my advice. And other vaccines. That. Yeah, when they come. Yes, yeah. get all the vaccines. All right. Well, Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Andy, get well. Thanks. And listeners, we'll see you next time. Yeah. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Bye.